Let me ask you this. What do you do with your ideas when they pop into your head? Do you just keep them there? Or do you write them down and then act? I work in the startup community um, across Adelaide, and I meet entrepreneurs from all walks of life. And some of them are running successful companies, some of them are just starting out, uh, and others are interested in how they come up with that idea. I specialize in the technology sector, and so everyone I meet wants to be the next Google, Amazon, Facebook. And that sector has its expectations of a rags-to-riches sort of thread. But they just need this one idea and they'll be sorted, like the big guys. But for every entrepreneur I meet, there are so many wantrepreneurs. If you've had the pleasure of running a business, then you'll know that execution is what matters. Ideas come and go. And honestly, if you look at Google, Amazon, and Facebook, what is the core idea behind their business? Search the internet, buy goods, connect with friends. Aren't exactly groundbreaking ideas. What mattered with those businesses was execution. And most entrepreneurs will gladly admit that they come up with at least five new ideas a day. They come up with them on the way to the office, at the gym, just walking down the street. Ask my fiance how many ideas I've got. And what do you think happens with all of those ideas? They get written down, or they're forgotten, or just dismissed for what they are. They're just an idea. Ideas themselves aren't useless. Many companies exist because the founder had a great idea. But the execution of those companies is what actually achieved the success, not the idea itself. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. What do you think of these ideas? Would you rate them? Selling property on the moon. Someone came to you saying, I'm going to start a business that sells property on the moon. What about owning a pet rock? If someone came to you saying, you know, people will buy rocks, right? They sound like terrible ideas, and I'm sure when these ideas were floated amongst family and friends, people laughed at them, but these ideas have actually happened, and these two guys have made millions. First one, Dennis Hope, millions selling acres of real estate on the moon. Gary Dahl, millions selling rocks that he puts in a box and he calls it a pet rock. The idea isn't actually what matters, it was the execution. It was meaning, it was the work and the effort to turn that idea into reality. That's what matters, not the idea itself. So what good is it to have an idea, yet not do anything about it? Well, James makes this same proposition at the beginning of this passage. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? What good is it to make a claim of faith, claiming to believe in Jesus, and not merely agree that Jesus just lived and died and rose again, but to trust him as Lord of their life? What good is it to make that sort of claim? Yet there be no actions and no evidence of that faith in the person's life. And James continues in that verse with quite a provocative question. Can such a faith save them? James is very concerned that someone may claim to be a believer without actually being one. And from chapter 1, verse 19, and all the way through into this chapter, he's concerned that we diagnose and remedy a situation, if it exists, 
where someone might have misunderstood what being a believer of Jesus actually is. So what's common across each of these passages, and if you've been here over the last couple of months, you would have seen um, us go through these passages. Uh, Next slide. They all have this common element to them, and that's action. Do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. Your religion's worthless if there aren't actions there in there, such as looking after the distressed. Keep the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Speak and act. Do you see actions, 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 all the way through James, and we're going to be continuing today in that theme of action as we look at this passage. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? The title of today's message, somewhat a little bit provocative, is called Arrested for Being a Christian. Is there enough evidence to convict? The three areas that we'll be looking at in this passage, the relationship between faith, deeds, and salvation, examples of faith when, it comes with, when it's in relation to others, and examples of faith in relation of God. This passage talks about those three things. But first, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Um, we ask that you will still our minds, that you will calm our hearts, that you'll allow our ears to be open to your word, that you'll allow us to, to have the word speak to us in ways that will be useful, helpful, and practical in our lives today. Pray that you'll be with me as I speak this, and I pray that I will be faithfully um, communicating the passage in front of us. In your name, amen. This passage in James hasn't been without its controversy over, the, over, over time. Martin Luther, the great reformer, actually described James as the epistle of straw. He thought it was worthless. And it was because of this passage that we're looking at today. He believed James was contradicting Paul on justification by faith alone. Uh, those are some big words. If you don't know what justification by faith is, the teaching of justification by faith is what separates biblical Christianity from all other belief systems. In every religion, but also in in some elements of what is called Christianity, man is working themselves on their way towards God. They're putting in effort. Only in true biblical Christianity is man saved as a result of grace through faith, belief, not by the works and effort. That's what justification by faith means. Paul is clear that you can't earn your way to heaven. Um, You can't get there by any other way but by faith alone, and only faith in the finished work of the cross. And he discusses this in Romans 3, 28, Romans 4, 1 to 5. But then we get to James where he starts talking about deeds and faith, and he uses a passage um, in the Old Testament within this section that we'll be looking at um, as proving his point. But Paul also uses the same passage to prove his point. Uh, And so that's where the controversy comes up. And the Gospel Coalition has a great uh, detailed article. I've got a URL up there, or see me later um, if you want that. If you want to really dig into all the nuts and bolts and the academia around it. Um, But as we look at this passage in James, we'll we'll actually see how James and Paul complement each other. That they're both looking at this truth 
uh, from different angles. And that truth being the faith alone justifies, but only the kind of faith that inevitably produces good works. And these works aren't the basis of justification. It's not the works that get you there, but the works are the result and the fruit of faith. When Paul was writing, he wrote to counteract legalism. And legalism is emphasizing a system of rules and regulations and things to do to achieve salvation. While James was writing to correct antinomianism, antinomianism, I probably am saying it wrong. Um, Okay, that's a funny word, but it basically means if I'm saved by grace and all my sins are forgiven, then I can just keep sinning and doing whatever I want doesn't matter, I'm already saved. That's what James was, was talking about. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We're not saved by works, otherwise people will say, hey, I'd do more than you. They would boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our salvation is through faith and not by works, not by anything we've done. But we are created to do good works. We have to remember verse 10. What good is claiming to have faith, yet there not be any expression of that faith in deeds? <coughs> Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Chapter 5 of Matthew begins with Jesus teaching his disciples. We are Jesus' disciples. We today, as believers, are light that is visible. It's light that needs to be seen by everyone. This light is active, it's doing something. It's lighting up everyone in the house. It's being shone before others. And why? So that everyone can see our good deeds and then to give glory and honor to God. James asks, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Well, according to Matthew 5, that's not very good at all because genuine faith produces good works that glorify God. Others are supposed to see the light of believers. They're supposed to have good deeds. James isn't asking if real faith can save. If we take a look closely at verse 14, he's saying, can such faith, being the example of the faith that's outlined at the beginning of that verse, this example of faith that's claimed only through words, but showing no evidence through actions, can that sort of faith be a saving faith? And the answer is no, since genuine faith affects the behavior of believers, and in doing so, produces good deeds. A faith that does not produce good deeds is not genuine. And if it's not genuine faith, can it save? If that person in verse 14 was arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict them? We see some of this play out in the miracle stories um, throughout the Gospels. And in many of them, Jesus asks key faith questions before doing the miracle. 
In the case of the woman who touched the fringes of his cloak, there was an action step involved there that came first, a step of faith that led towards the desired result. People who were healed not only had faith, they had enough faith to come to where Jesus was and obey what he said um, to do. They demonstrated uh, action that was coupled with faith. James, at, when he was writing his letter, he was dissatisfied with people who talked the talk but never got around to walking the walk. It's like that old saying, when all is said and done, there's a lot more said than done. Faith and deeds are important to James. And this is, this is the passage up there, you, you don't need to read all of that, but in this passage, faith is mentioned 10 times, and deeds is always in the plural, also mentioned 10 times. Faith and deeds are going hand in hand throughout this passage. Outside of this passage, uh, James mentions faith four times, and deeds three times. So this passage is really bringing those two together quite strongly. Faith and deeds are working together in this passage. James wants us to check ourselves. Do we have faith that is producing good deeds? And this passage then goes on from that, from that beginning verse, goes on giving four examples that describe people with different expressions of faith, expressions that are towards others, and expressions of faith that are towards God. And in both of those expressions, towards others, towards God, he gives an example of someone with questionable faith and someone with genuine faith. Questionable faith he calls dead faith, and genuine faith is a living faith. So first, let's have a look at faith as expressed towards others. And the first example is someone of questionable faith. James 2, chapter 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Here we see an example of a Christian, a brother or sister, that has an obvious physical need. And another Christian gives them a verbal blessing and have a nice day but doesn't do anything to help their obvious situation. If arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict that person? The example James uses, it's self-explanatory, about turning away people that need help. James straight up says, in the same way, it makes no sense to wish someone well, but not do anything to help them. That doesn't make any sense. He also says, well, it doesn't make any sense to claim to have faith, yet have no deeds. He labels that sort of faith, that sort of claim, as dead. Dead faith would be something like paying for a gym membership, but just never going. And what good is that? What sort of deeds may James have been expecting in this first example? What might he have been expecting of this believer? Well, just a few verses earlier in chapter 2, James talks about the royal law, a law that gives freedom. In verse 8, if you really keep the royal law of Scripture, uh, royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In this example, mercy would have been a good starting point, loving our neighbour. 
giving that neighbor what their body needed, food and clothes. That is faith that's working in mercy. I'm sure there, there are times that, as believers, we're presented with a person in need, and there are reasons why we might not be able to give a helping hand, such as fear, time availability, caution around the situation. But James is presenting a challenge that if deeds don't accompany a, behavior, a, a believer in faith, then it's a dead faith. If there's just no deeds, if there's just no evidence, a faith that's resulting in nothing. A faith that has no evidence that would convict you if you're arrested for being a Christian. This is what James is warning about. Now let's look at another example offered by James of faith that's expressed to others, but this time it's an example of someone with genuine faith. Verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? If you don't know the story, Rahab was a resident of the city of Jericho. And you can read about her story in Joshua, chapter 2 and chapter 6. She was a Gentile, so she wasn't Jewish. She was a prostitute and wasn't someone that people would give much attention to. When Joshua sent two spies into Jericho to get the lay of the land, they met Rahab and they lodged at her house. Somebody told the king, and imagine the difficulty that she was facing. The enemies of her people are staying under her roof. The king has found out and sends men who demand that she give them up. What should she do? She could have handed them over, but she didn't take the easy way out. She had faith in God, and that faith led her to protect them. And in doing so, confirmed that she believed in what God had said, in what God was doing. Rahab heard the word and believed, but had actions. Rahab responded with her actions. She did something about it. She risked her life to protect the Israelite spies. She took a step of faith. And she proved her faith by her deed. And ultimately, that took Rahab from being a prostitute in a pagan country to a new land, where she became the great-grandmother of David, the king of Israel. This example from James is showing a living faith, a genuine faith that expresses good deeds towards others. If James were watching what I do, how I interact with people day to day. I wonder what he would say. If I was arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? Now consider your standard week. What would James say about how obvious your faith is when you exp in that expression of faith as you interact with others? The people that you come into contact with throughout the week, how is your, your faith expressed amongst family, amongst church life, at work, at the gym, and so forth? How might people in those settings see your faith? Is it a light that's shining for everyone, or is it hidden? 
because no one can see any outward expression or deeds of that faith. These are all questions that we need to challenge ourselves on. And James shows some examples of faith as expressed towards God. And in this, in this next example, we'll, we'll see of someone with questionable faith and how that faith is expressed towards God in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence of faith without deeds is useless? Here, a hypothetical person argues that faith and deeds may exist separately. In other words, someone may have faith, and someone else may have deeds. Now, it's possible this person was talking about the spiritual gifts from God, how to God some gives gifts of unshakable trust in Him, the gift of faith, as we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, and to others, gifts of mercy, as we see in Romans 12, 8, to some mercy, to some faith. So I'll leave you to your gifts and you leave me to mine. But that's not what James is talking about here. And he already highlighted in verse 14 that when he's talking about faith, he's talking about a saving faith. Can that faith save? He's talking about a faith that all believers have. And not just the special gift of faith that some possess. James argues and makes clear that faith, saving faith, and deeds work together. Faith produces deeds and deeds reveal faith. He writes, I will show you my faith by my deeds. Trying to separate faith and deeds is a violation towards God. In the example we looked at earlier of the Christian ignoring the physical needs of another Christian, isn't that a direct violation of what God commands? Love your neighbor as yourself. Not to mention all the teaching that talks about in the body of Christ being in community, covering each other, looking after each other's backs. Someone who tries to separate faith from deeds, having them exist separately, is setting apart even what Jesus teaches, that we are to have good works so that God is glorified. Anyone can say they have faith, but actions will always speak louder than words. James writes that even the demons believe. The demons' problem is not their belief. It's just that their belief does not lead to repentance. They have an intellectual faith towards God, a belief in God, but it's dead because there's no actions accompanying that faith. And how do the demons respond? They're responding with a shudder. They're, they have the fear of God in them, but they also have no peace. They know who God is. Their belief in God doesn't bring them any peace. James offers up another example of faith expressed towards God, but this time an example of genuine faith. So we have a look at verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was also called God's friend. 
You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This Old Testament example that James is referring to is, is actually quite interesting, and um, I'll be having a graphic coming up shortly. Um, first, we're going to read through several chapters of James, just a couple of verses each chapter, to build a picture to try and explain what James is getting at here. Uh, but then I'll summarize it all in a nice graphic um, that will make it, an illustration always makes it a lot easier. We're going to start at, Gen- at Genesis 12, um, which we read earlier, where the Lord called Abram, and he, he was called Abram at this point. Uh, this is Abraham we're talking about, but he wasn't called Abraham until much further on. The Lord called Abram, go, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. God makes a promise to Abram, and then Abram leaves, and he does what the Lord said. God said, go, made a promise, and the promise was that he will be a great nation. Abram was 75 years old and childless. Um, might be difficult to understand how you could be a great nation if, you, if you're looking at those sort of statistics in front of you. But he obeyed and packed up everything, left his country, left his people, left his family, left the family business. We already see in this passage that there was action on Abram's part. Um, He turned his world upside down. But it was short-lived. The belief, um, uh, Abram disobeyed God. So God said, go to the land that I will show you. And Abram stayed there for a little while, but then it got a little hard, and he went somewhere else. There was a famine that went into the land. Um, so you're not really seeing diligent obedience, diligent belief. Uh, then we get to Genesis 15, which is about 10 years later. Uh, Abram said to God, I remain childless. No one is there to inherit. Um, you have given me no children. Someone else is going to end up inheriting. And God came and said, reaffirmed his promise. Um, said, look at the stars, if you can count them, that's how big your family is going to be. And then in this passage, we see that Abram Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. This passage, Abraham was losing hope and he'd just come out of winning a military battle against four kings and their nations. And in the process, he rescued his his nephew Lot, but he despairs. He has no heir. He's won a land, but who's he going to give the land to? God speaks to him, shows him the stars and the heavens, reaffirming the promise that he'd made over there in Genesis 12, that he would have a large family. And it's at this point that we hear about Abraham's belief. It's his belief in God that credited righteousness to him. This is the first place in the Bible that the word believed is used. There's not a lot to show for his faith. There's not many deeds that you can commend Abraham on for his faith. There's been disobedience leading up to this. It will be 14 more years before circumcision is even given as a sign of faith. So quite early on. Now we come to Genesis 16. Now Sarai, uh, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian slave, Hagar. Um, said to Abram, the Lord is keeping me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed. Abram again is losing hope. He's not trusting in God. He's trying to rush God's promise along through his own means. 
hardly the model of what you would want to hold up as righteous. He's doubting that he will have a son. He turns to his Egyptian maidservant and has a son with her and names him Ishmael. And then later in chapter 20, which we won't look at, he lied to Abimelech, telling him that his wife was in fact his sister. But then we get to Genesis 22, which is now 30 years later. And by, by this time, Abraham has had his son Isaac by his wife Sarah. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. So we get to this passage and we see that God is testing Abraham's faith. God has asked him to sacrifice his son, his only son, the son who the promises that God had made are going to be delivered through. And what's Abraham's response? It's obedience. He genuinely trusted God. He left early the next morning. He didn't put it off for a couple of days. He left early the next morning. Abraham obeys at every point throughout this passage. I only read a, a, a small bit of it. And just short of slaying his son, Abraham is stopped and commended for demonstrating his faith. These would have been unbelievable circumstances, but Abraham continued in his obedience. Abraham's faith in God was proven because he was willing to do the difficult thing of sacrificing his only son, Isaac. His faith was justified, and God knew by his action that Abraham believed. And I've got a graphic that I'll run through in a moment um, on why James uses this verse to commend Abraham for his belief. So it looks a bit busy. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17, 22, God is making promises. God's been making promises over a span of 40 years or, or more, but then God makes a command at the end. The sad faces are the times that Abraham's been disobedient. Um, God makes a promise, Abraham disobeys. God makes a promise, Abraham disobeys. God makes a promise, Abraham disobeys. But then God commands and Abraham obeys. And he obeys in unbelievable circumstances. And it's at the point that Abraham obeyed that his faith was made complete. And that's what it says in the James passage. In verse 22, his actions were working together with his faith. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And in verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled. And the scripture that he's talking about is, is back at Genesis 15 when he was credited righteousness. This is what these, these verses in James are talking about, that even though time had passed, he was credited righteousness just on belief, but his actions completed that faith. A Christian is someone whose deeds show their faith in God. Abraham took a while, but by his deeds he showed his genuine faith and he was commended for them. James uses Abraham in the Genesis 22 passage. Um, Paul also uses this as an example of being justified by faith. Paul was talking about how 
we are justified before God by receiving our salvation through faith and belief. James is talking about how our faith is being justified and branded genuine by producing good deeds. Abraham's faith was a partner with his deeds. He didn't just sit around and trust God. He got up and took his son early the next morning to sacrifice him. Abraham's faith was brought to its highest peak through his actions in unbelievable circumstances. And his act of sacrifice was his total demonstration and trust in God. It was a final maturing of his faith. Both Abraham and Rahab are imperfect people, living imperfect lives. They stuffed up along the way, which should bring some comfort to us. They demonstrated a living faith that was focused on God. Living faith is not perfection, and it's not about earning salvation. It's a focused desire, trust on God, and the action of living the will of God. James concludes this passage by saying, verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A body without breath is simply a corpse. Likewise, faith without deeds is dead. A deedless faith is dead and useless because it is not genuine. And friends, let us examine ourselves in light of this passage in James. Asking ourselves, do I believe what the Bible teaches about God? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do I believe the Bible is true and trustworthy? Do I have faith that Jesus died and rose again for my sins? If you can say yes to those things, then that's great. But now ask yourself, does my faith work? Does my faith affect how I think? Are my thoughts consumed by self-interest and self-preservation? Or are my thoughts focused on Christ and the needs of others? Does my faith affect how I speak? Do I have self-control over my tongue? Do I gossip about others, slandering them? These things aren't good because they're unloving. Do we speak to lift people up or to tear them down? Does my faith affect how I live? Everyone has the same 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. How do we use those hours? How much time do we spend showing love and mercy to others? Or how much time do we spend selfishly? These are questions that we all need to take to God in prayer and to ask for help and wisdom. And as provocative as it sounds, we need to think about if arrested as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? Genuine faith fuels Christians' good deeds. And these deeds are important because they glorify God. And it leads others to do so as well. As Paul cautions us in Ephesians 5, verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we firstly just thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for your, your unbelievable sacrifice for us. We are undeserving, and there's nothing that we could have done um, to earn that. But you wanted relationship with us. You wanted to be with us. 
And so you took that first step, as you have always taken the first threat throughout the Bible. And we just thank you for that. And we just pray that we will remember you and we'll remember that in, in our day-to-day life. We just pray that our life will be an expression of you. We pray that our life will be used for you so that others can come to know you, so others can experience uh, this love and this grace that you have. In your name I pray, amen. If you'll join me now, uh, we're going to sing our final song, The Wondrous Cross. <laughs>